Good morning. We're getting really close to wrapping up, I think, uh, believe what has been probably one of the most impactful course of sermons we've ever done in our 20-year history at Three Rivers Church. Um, For me, it has been refining. Um, For me, it has been um, growth-oriented. It's not the first time we've taught through basic Christian doctrine, but for some reason, this course of sermons has been personally uh, more impactful, and I'm, I'm hearing from you guys that it's been huge as well, and so we're getting close to the end. Uh, two more Sundays on the Christian life. Um, Jim and John are going to be teaching those uh, individually, and then we launch uh, into Exodus, and we'll be there for the next 27 years. So, uh, metaphorically, but pretty close. And uh, today, though, we, we're going to talk about uh, the question, what are last things? What are last things? We're going to be looking at Revelation 22, 1 to 5 in just a few moments. We really need to set that up, though. We're going to do a lot of pre-work, and then we're going to do a short amount of time in Revelation 22, 1 to 5, and then we're going to do some application. But the pre-work is necessary. Um, our scripture that's really been our launch pad for this course of sermons is 1 Timothy 4, 16. It says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul tells us that it's vital that we watch carefully what we teach, what we believe, because in it, there's life. Or in it, there is death. And so we have to keep a close watch on ourselves, and we have to keep a close watch on the teaching and persevere in these things. Today, we're going to study last things in order to help us keep a watch on ourselves and on our teaching. Last things is what is called eschatology in theological studies. Eschatology is from the Greek word eschatos, which means last, thus the study of last things. And so eschatology is the study of the Bible's record of the last events of the last days. Now the scope of last things, the the breadth of the study of last things or eschatology is everything from the return of Jesus to the millennium, this thousand-year period, either its literality or its figurative nature, its timing, and a host of other implications related to the millennium. And it's also encompassing of the final judgment and eternal punishment. And eschatology also studies the new heaven and the new earth, creation regained. These are very vital components, and, and each one of them could be a series of sermons in and of themselves. I taught systematic theology for 10 years, uh, formally in classroom setting, and and trust me when I say each one of those could be multiple sermons apiece. Um, So we're not going to dive into all of that. Next Sunday is first Sunday. It's June 4th, so first Sunday is upstairs uh, in the chapel area. I'm going to come back and cover some of these things on first Sunday Um, in a little more detail. We're not going to go into a ton of detail, but we're going to go into a little bit more of the nuances of each of those. You can sign up for that. We'll send you an email just so we know that you're coming. 
So the question is, should eschatology be on the list of essential things to keep a, a watch on? Is it really essential? Some would say yes, it's essential. It kind of falls into the category of what Paul's telling us here that we need to keep a close watch on ourselves and our teaching. Some would say no, it's not essential. Now, I'm gonna give you three reasons why I say yes. Now, I say yes because how we understand the end affects what we do now what we do the here and now, how we do ministry, it actually affects how you engage domains of society, the concept of seeing the healing of systems in the world and engaging your vocation has an eschatological framework. And so it matters because it affects what we do now. And here's an example. Misunderstanding Peter's words in 2 Peter 3, 10 to 13 you can go read that, and actually that scripture is going to be in one of our applications toward the end, has led a lot of people in a certain framework to abandon care for creation since they misinterpret that God's just going to burn everything up and it's going to go away, and we're going to fly up to some place in the sky and fly around forever and play harps and sing songs. And misinterpreting Peter's words has led to an entire framework of mismanaging created order because they perceive it doesn't count. And so it kind of matters what we think because it affects what we do here and now. Peter uses that apocalyptic language in 2 Peter 3, 10 to 13 to describe what the Lord is doing in shaking the established systems that are infected with sin and in need of restoration and the human systems that are calling into question the truthfulness of Jesus' promise to return. Paul uses similar language in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15 when he talks about us receiving reward. The Lord is going to purge creation of rebellion. He's going to make all things new, and it will be done on his timeline. And it's not going to be done on the timeline of those who take digs at Jesus' seeming delay in returning. Peter's not making a statement rooted in literality. He's using apocalyptic language to describe the, re the reordering of all things, just like the Old Testament prophets used, because he's a student of the Bible, and he's using the Bible's language to speak about the reordering of all things to bring them under the rule of Christ. And so it matters. This is one of the reasons we teach you read your Bible. This is one of the reasons we teach you on first Sundays. We do Bible study. We teach you how to study the Bible so that you learn how to read well Here's just a Bible study note. This is not in your notes. Your notes are available at theologyinthedirt.com. You can go see what I have in front of me. They're available to you. This is a Bible study tip. You read literal unless it's not intended to be read literally, right? That, that's kind of how you read everything. You don't pick up a fiction book and read it literally, right? Now, the Bible's not fiction, but it has multiple genres in it. Apocalyptic genre is a genre that speaks in pictures. It's a genre that was popular about 300 years, 300 BC to, to around 200 AD. And nobody writes like that anymore. It's a dead genre of writing and it's unique. The book of Revelation is mixed. It has historical narrative on the front end, the letters to the churches, and, and, and or it's, it's kind of letters, it's got a little historical narrative, and then it shifts to apocalyptic genre. From that point on, you read it differently than you read the first few chapters of the book. Same with Peter. Peter's using language from the Old Testament prophets to speak about God's reordering and shaking up of things as he brings his kingdom to bear. Not a statement about the goodness of creation. Go back to Genesis for that. He made everything very good, right? 
So secondly, I say yes because where we live in the southeast and how last things have been used for poor evangelism through scare tactics, if you were raised in the 70s like me, there was a movie that churches showed a lot on Sunday nights called Thief in the Night. Anybody here unprivileged enough to see that? The two of us. That really messed some people up, and I'm one of them. That was all about the end times and all about that stuff and used to yank people kicking and screaming to salvation in Jesus who were just afraid of having their heads lopped off, not because they love Jesus. And unfortunately, a lot of that continues in certain circles and how people talk about eschatology. Sometimes the study of last things has also been used as a bludgeoning tool to beat up adherents to an inferior view of the millennium. And the inferior view of the millennium is the one that you don't happen to hold. And so therefore, if you don't hold my opinion, I'm gonna beat you up because yours is stupid. That happens an awful lot. Sometimes eschatology is used to justify certain responses to culturally challenging times. Rather than seeking the discipling of sinners, we begin looking for ways to see the kingdom of God come by other means than the local church, which is the outpost of the kingdom of God. Do not misunderstand. Jesus said the kingdom of God is not coming in ways to be observed. His rule is increasing. Isaiah is clear about that. But his rule is increasing among his people. And the Bible is also clear that Jesus is coming again. And when he comes, he's going to wrap things up. We might be under duress, but he is going to fix it, finish it, and he will establish his kingdom finally and eternally. And people use eschatology as means of addressing cultural issues in, I think, poor ways. I say yes, finally, because there have been people since I was a child misusing the book of Revelation. And sadly, beginning by calling it Revelations, it is not Revelations no more than Kroger is Kroger's and Walmart is Walmart's. You understand what I'm saying? <laughs> and then they butchered the rapture. They misread the Bible's genres surrounding last things. And then they confidently preach that we're nearing the last days, ignoring the fact that Hebrews 1, 1 to 3 tells us we've been in the last days since Jesus came. And that Jesus' work was the very end of the fulfillment of God's promises, thus he could literally finish the Great Commission and return truly at any moment. Acts 13, 32 and 33 is very clear. There's no promise left unkept. God has kept everything he has promised, written in the scriptures, and there's no, no more promises left to keep. And when you wrap your head, heart, and mind around that, Jesus' parables will start making more sense about the master returning any moment. And so I hope you feel, we'll get to this in the application, I hope you feel the weight of that in a very good way. Jesus told the parables, like, don't, don't think the master's delayed in coming and start abusing his resources, doing things your way and ignoring his way because he will come at a moment you're not expecting and you will be cast into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So don't think he's delayed. Live today quite literally like he might come in the next five minutes because he quite literally could. God has no more promises to keep to us. He has fulfilled every word he has written Acts 13 is clear. Therefore, be ready. Be ready. Be ready. Folks have used eschatology as a point of division quite literally for a couple hundred years through our cultural ups and downs in the setting of the United States, and they separate fellowships on debatable points. I had to do a writing project on Baptist history 
a long time ago when I was working on my master's degree, and I had to research the church ledgers of three Baptist churches that had over 100 years history. And each of these three, their history went prior to the Civil War. And the church ledgers were fascinating because churches used to have what is called a church secretary. And the church secretary's job was quite literally to record just about everything that happened in the life of the church in handwriting in a book called a church ledger. Fascinating. And these church church ledgers showed numerous church breakups and splits over beliefs about the millennium, theonomy, which is the study of the application of the Old Testament law to governmental practice. I have a footnote in the notes, and I don't think you can see it. WordPress doesn't take footnotes, and I'll try to go copy and paste that footnote to an article um, on that. And then they split up over the rapture. As cultural seasons come and go, so do these issues. Every generation says, man, we're living in unprecedented times. Can I just say you're not? You're not. Go read the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, and you'll realize that, man, we're pretty tame compared to then. They didn't use rainbows to talk about it back then. We got kids in the room, so I'm going to keep it very G-rated. But believe me, we're living not in unprecedented times. It's not as bad as it's ever been. All right? And so don't take eschatology as an over-response to the times. Understand, as good little Southern Baptists, and I would say as biblical Christians, our task is to see the conversion of sinners, not seek the conversion of a government. God will see to the increase of the government of Jesus Christ over all nations. He is coming again, and he will rule the nations. That's a fact. But right now, you have sinners in your midst who need to be preached to and converted to Jesus Christ, or they're going to go to hell. Okay? And so understand that as a church, we're not going to do those things read about in church ledgers. We're not going to do that. We're also not going to advocate for debatable points. The more I study eschatology, the more I realize I don't know what I think I know, and neither do you. There are some things God left vague to keep us on mission so we don't fixate on things we don't need to fixate on. He gave us enough to keep us on point, and that's intentional. The goal this morning as we look at the scripture we're going to look at is to take a peek at the new heavens and the new earth, the new heavens and the new earth, and set our hope on the surety, the surety of the end God has given us. So we're going to take a look at creation regained. We're going to do it in Revelation 22, 1 to 5. So this scripture is going to be on the screens for you. If you would stand, we're going to read it together. Revelation 22, 1 to 5. Here we go. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Creation, fall, 
redemption, restoration, creation, regain. That's the storyline of the Bible. That's the storyline of the good news. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and the restoration is creation, regain. It's Eden regained. It's Eden in the beginning, but this time Eden with no darkness in it. Revelation 22, 1 to 5 gives a tiny apocalyptic glimpse. And let me stop there and, and define for you. The title, Revelation, which the last book of your Bible was titled, Revelation is the English translation of the Greek word apocalypsis, which is where we get our word apocalypse. Apocalypse does not mean what you watch on television. Apocalypse means revealing. So the revelation is the apocalypse, the revealing of Jesus as who he is, which is why the book, book, book's primary point is Jesus. It begins with Jesus and it ends with Jesus. And Jesus rules the middle. In fact, one of my favorite parts of the book of Revelation is when we get to Revelation 4 and 5, there's this book and it's sealed with seven seals and John sees that it can't be opened and he begins to weep and, and, and they say to him, why are you weeping? Behold the line of the tribe of Judah, this one who has conquered, this one who was killed and he was buried and he is alive forevermore, the King of kings and Lord of lords, he can open the book sealed with seven seals. And then the next chapter is Jesus opening each seal and as he opens each seal, economics happens, agriculture happens, government happens all these things happen life happens death happens because Jesus is running history he never has stopped running history and he never will stop running history and you see in the revelation the apocalypsis of, of Jesus that he is king of kings and lord of lords and that's the centerpiece of this little book called revelation the revealing of Jesus and in Revelation 22 1 to 5 we get a glimpse into the capital city of the eternal global kingdom of God on this good earth that is totally restored from the curse of sin so I want to set this up by walking through Revelation 21 somewhat briefly Revelation 22 1 to 5 only makes sense when you have a beautiful picture of Revelation, Revelation chapter 21 Revelation 21 shows us the new heaven and the new earth and it's coming together. Revelation 21 is preceded by Revelation 20 where judgment happens. All the dead are raised to life. Those who've not repented of the sin and those who have repented of sin believe the gospel. Books are open. God hands out reward to his people and those who haven't trusted Jesus are cast in the lake of fire and there they will live forever with all the rebels of the kingdom of God under the punishment of God forever. And then we get Revelation chapter 21 where we see the new heavens and the new earth coming together. Revelation 21, 1 to 4, the theme of that little section is all the former things have passed away. Listen carefully, because one of my favorite verses in the Bible is here because it speaks to us today. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first 
first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning and crying or pain for the former things have passed away. You see it in verse 1, see it in verse 4. The former things have passed away. And now everything has been made new. So we see in these first four verses of Revelation 21, all the former stuff's passed away. That's what you see at the end of Revelation chapter 20, is all of the former stuff, all the stuff that needed to be purged, God has purged it. He's taken it away, and he's made all things new. And this beautiful statement at the end of verse 1, and the sea was no more. There was no more sea. Now listen to me very carefully. Remember, this isn't historical narrative it's apocalyptic genre when he says the sea is no more i need you to understand this he's not making a statement about the hydrology of the new heaven and the new earth there's water there we see it in revelation 22 1 to 5 god made water water's good we function on water water's going to be there when you read revelation you'll notice bad things come out of the water there's a dragon there's all kinds of bad stuff there frogs there's got evil spirit there's bad things coming out of the water and there's chaos coming out of the water. So when he sees the new heaven and the new earth, he says the water is no more. Guess what he's saying? Chaos is gone. Chaos is removed because the former things have passed away and there's no more chaos. Understand this, that in the new heavens and the new earth, at the end of all things, all chaos is going to be abolished. The Bible teaches us this little word shalom, peace. Sin wrecked shalom. And what happened as in the place of Shalom, chaos began to rule. Disorder began to reign. And we see it in Genesis chapter 4, Cain slaughters Abel. And from those moments, from Genesis 3 on, we see chaos, 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 chaos. In the new heavens and the new earth, it will not be that way. Shalom will be restored. Rhythm and right order will be restored. And we will have the new order of complete peace forever. Glory. Death will be no more. We won't bury children anymore like we do today. It won't happen again because chaos will die. Number two, in Revelation 21, 5 to 8, we see this theme, the Lord makes all things new. The Lord makes all things new. I'm not going to take time to read all these verses because we need, to, we need to get to where we need to get to. But in Revelation 21, 5 to 8, the, the Lord makes all things new and he makes three statements here. Statement one is the declaration of what he's doing. God says, this is what I'm doing. God announces beforehand what he does. And he flat out does it. Statement two is a command for it to be written down so it could be communicated to us. And then the third statement is a declaration of who God is and what he's going to do for the righteous and for the unrighteous. We learn that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. Revelation begins with Jesus, ends with Jesus. The Bible begins with Jesus creating and ends with Jesus ruling. Jesus is the point of everything written in the text. He is the Alpha and the Omega. We see here also what he's going to do. The Lord is going to satisfy the thirst of his people for life with life. And they will be his children he will be our God. And then we see that he's going to sentence those who refused his salvation and loved their flesh and their sin to the second death that lives on forever. The language is clear here in the text. The second death is the ongoing portion for those who refuse the Lord's offer of pardon through faith in Jesus. It is not a one-time, 
and done. It is a inauguration that will go on forever. And I need you to hear this this morning. I need you to understand, if you have not turned to Jesus in faith, that will be your lot forever. It's just come to Jesus by faith. Just believe him. Turn from sin, believe in Jesus, and you can inherit life. You will have all of that. If not, you will be forever under the punishment, the just punishment of God. See Isaiah 66, 22 to 24 further for that. And by the way, the New Testament authors never leave the text of the Bible. They're always preaching from the text of the Old Testament which is why we teach you, read your Bible through, read it through, we give you a Bible reading plan, get through that Old Testament at least once a year, you need to know it, you need to know it, because every time you get the New Testament, you start reading, you think, man, I, I think I've read that before, and you modern Bibles, people have done a lot of work, you look at those little letters in the margin of wherever they are on your Bible, and you can see that reference point, oh, he's preaching from Isaiah, yeah, that's right, so he's preaching from Isaiah, and he's letting us know that God is keeping his word. The last thing we see in Revelation 21, 9 to 27 is this beautiful reality. The Lord is the treasure of the, of the renewed creation. The Lord is the treasure of the renewed creation. Um, I'm just gonna read you a little quote here from Dr. Jim Hamilton. He's uh, at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And he kind of is, if I picked, if I had to pick a framework, an eschatological framework, Dr. Hamilton's is kind of where I, I lean, but not completely because they're all kind of vague. I'm just telling you, if you go read Hamilton, I kind of jive with Hamilton a little bit. Listen to how he summarizes what happens in verse 9 to 27. The treasure in the new heaven and new earth is God. God is the treasure of the new heaven. Listen to this. Look how casually what is treated by sinful hearts is used in the new heaven and the new earth. They take the largest pearls in the world and make them into gates. Then they leave the gates open, even though the city is made of pure gold. And they have the audacity to take all the jasper and build it into a wall. And all the gold is used to pave streets. All this shows that the real treasure of the new heaven and new earth is God himself. What we treasure now, we think, oh my gosh, why would you take a pearl and make a gate with it? It's a precious thing in the new heaven and new earth. It's like, it's just a pearl, man. It's irrelevant. Gold, eh, who cares? Because the treasure is no longer stuff the flesh wants. The treasure is God himself. And that's what we were designed for in the garden is to love fellowship with God. And sin wrecked that so that we would love things rather than the God who made the things. In the new heaven and the new earth, God himself is the treasure. We read in verse 22 of Revelation 21, there's no need for a temple because the Lord's presence is experienced without hindrance. <laughs> you know those breaks where he feels absent? He's not, but he feels absent. Those won't be anymore. The presence of the Lord will be experienced without hindrance. Revelation 21, verse 23 to 25, and verse 27, darkness is banished. Remember when we studied through Genesis, and we repeat this over and over, darkness is never called good in Genesis 1 and 2, because darkness isn't good. There's already been a rebellion, and God is getting us ready to hear about that rebellion. Darkness is finally banished forever, and all the earth will walk in constant light, and nothing unclean will ever spoil it. And we see that the end of Revelation 21, the nations will bring all the glories of their production into the capital city as they were designed to do at creation. Like, I, 
I, I don't know anything else to say to you to make you want the kingdom of God fully manifested. That's awesome. Can you imagine production without sin? Humans don't do good with nothing to do because we were made to work. We, work is, is, is one of the ways the image of God in us is dignified and comes to the surface. We were made to be creators with the things he made. And when we don't have anything to do, that's when we get into really deep trouble. And so what we're going to be doing in the eternal kingdom is not sitting there singing songs all day. We're going to work with our hands and with our minds and with our eyes and our feet. We're going to put our bodies to work and we're going to produce with no sin and without anything to wreck us or wear us out or kill us. And we will joyfully bring all of that to present before the Lord and we will be fulfilled as fully restored humans. Glory to God. Isn't that awesome? No more boredom. Wow. Here's what I think. I think we've been so wrecked and enamored with sin that we value boredom and hate production. We'd rather scroll and read something that really doesn't exist. Think about it. It doesn't really exist. And train our brains to not be able to pay attention or produce anything meaningful. And we think that's good. And we want it more. And all it is is evidence of our flesh running from God because it will not be that way in the new heaven and new earth. And if you want those things more than you want God, you are not a Christian. And you will not be there. If you want something more than you want Jesus, you don't belong to Jesus and you will not be in his kingdom. The very essence of transformation is that we are so changed that we want Jesus more than anything else. We want him more than life. Jesus is better than life. That's Revelation 21. And then we get to this beautiful little glimpse of new creation in Revelation chapter 22. So we see three beautiful things. We see the river, we see the tree of life, and we see the Lord's presence. Let me read it for you one more time. I'm gonna read it slow, and I just want you to hear it. I want you to listen to it. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They'll need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The river, Ezekiel 47, 1 Ezekiel sees this stream in his prophetic vision. He sees this stream because in Genesis chapter 2, verse 10, God put a river in Eden and it flowed out and it divided into four rivers. What Ezekiel sees and what John sees is the restoration of creation to its Edenic state. What Ezekiel sees and what John sees is the restoration 
of all of creation back to its Edenic state. The Lord is going to remove all sin and all lawlessness and life in its fullness will be forever restored. I believe when Jesus offered living water to the woman at the well in John 4, he did that not accidentally or even contextually as a primary motivation to speak to the woman. I believe Jesus is always anchored to the text of the Bible. Jesus never leaves the Bible. He's always preaching the text he inspired. Pay attention to that when you read the Gospels. Jesus never leaves the text. He never makes stuff up. He's already given it in his word, and he's simply preaching from the word he's given. I believe Jesus is regenerating this woman at the well with the water of his presence. Because he promised her water that will cause her to never thirst again of which that water that she would put in her mouth and drink was just a pointer. Jesus was regenerating this woman with the water at the well of his presence, and physical water is there as a life-giving liquid for her and a context to point her and us to the life-giving need of the presence of Jesus, not merely the need of water. Because he is the water of life that wells up to eternal life. Make no mistake, there's water literally in the new creation. And I don't believe John is being also merely metaphorical here. There will be a restoration of the physical creation and its benefit to us and a restoration of the presence of the Lord who created physical creation so that as we enjoy one, we will also simultaneously enjoy the other and there will never be a divide between the two ever again. So as we enjoy physical creation, we will simultaneously equally be enjoying the God who gave it to us because there's nothing we'll be able to mess that up. There's the river. And there's the tree of life. In Eden, there was already a spoiling presence and a deadly competitive option next to the tree of life. It was called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The tree of knowing good and evil led to the defiling of the nations and their judgment under evil forces. Now, there's only the tree of life. And what's it doing? It's producing fruit and its leaves are healing the nations. And this tree of life, the nations are feeding from it. And this tree is feeding from the water of the new creation of the Lord's presence. So the Lord's presence is feeding and regenerating and making all of this happen so that we feed on the production of the Lord. Rather than defiling the nations, though, the nations are healed by the Lord's unimpeded presence as they feast on the fruit of new creation and His presence. I can't imagine a world in which nations function with no sin. But they're going to. They're going to. It's a foregone conclusion. Jesus is going to make it happen. And then we got the Lord's presence. Notice those last few statements. The Lord is there. Notice we learned there's no longer anything accursed. Nothing accursed. The Lord's presence is with us, felt, seen, enjoyed, and will be so forever. Wow. Here's what I think. I think that's so beyond what we can imagine, most of us don't even know what to do with it. Life is so chaotic, challenges are so thick and so hard that we can't imagine shalom unimpeded the Lord's presence never hindered 
No sin, nothing to tempt me to sin. No death. No husbands and wives to bury, no children to bury. No cancer. No longer that foreign emotion of fear and terror. No longer internal distress. It's gone. And we'll be face to face with the Lord and constantly feeding on His presence while we enjoy creation and His presence together. Nothing to impede either. I don't know about you, but yesterday was a, a mixed day with the graveside service and the funeral to come today and probably one of the most magically beautiful days I've seen in a long time. Humidity was low. The sun was out. The temperature was just right. And I was thinking, if we could just stay this way until October, knowing that July and August and September are coming, but just enjoying a magically beautiful day. And my mind kept going to, I can't imagine it being much better than this in the new creation. But as good as that day was, it was still tainted by sin. Now imagine something that magically beautiful. No sin. And it doesn't have to end. Yeah. Hank was right. If heaven ain't a lot like Dixie, I don't want to go. And Dixie was right on yesterday, boys and girls. That's, that's not true. But you get my point. There are those days where we realize, man, it's just right. And, and, and I probably think a little bit more about Hank Williams and Hank Williams Jr. than I should. But I think understanding what that man understood when he wrote songs like that, raised in a cultural Christian setting in which heaven is presented as this ethereal place that's sort of spiritual, not physical, undefined. We don't know what to do with it. So we just call it heaven, and it's kind of somewhere up in the sky, and we don't think it's kind of be an all-day singing kind of thing. It's led a lot of us who grew up thinking that to going, that's not a lot, I'm not real sure, I, I don't know about that. If it's an all-day singing, I didn't like that as a kid growing up. And I kind of like physical creation. I kind of like rivers and streams and mountains. And I like, I like being outside and the sky, I don't know. And the Bible never teaches us that. And so I think what Hank was saying in his sinful way is, if heaven's not kind of like the good stuff I know here, what good is going? I think he's right. Listen, I hope, I hope that as you read and study your Bible, you will begin to see that what God created in Genesis is good, very good, and what he recreates and makes new at the end is good and very good, and what we will have in the eternal kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is a physical existence that is full of life and good with no sin to hinder. So all the good days we have that are about as perfect as they can be, they're only going to be infinitely better, and they will never end, and we will see Jesus face to face in it. That's worth selling everything for, which is why Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a man who was walking in a field and he stumbled over something. He dug it and he found a treasure and the treasure was worth more than everything he had. So he covered it up, went and sold everything he had and bought that field. Jesus said the kingdom's like that. It's worth more than you can ever imagine and it's worth selling everything for. Therefore, therefore, if there's any compelling from this good news that Jesus is king, the eternal God, 
And sin has wrecked it all, but he came and he took on flesh and he died in your place for your sin to pay the penalty for that sin. And he was buried and on the third day he rose and he ascended to the right hand of the Father to make salvation available for everyone who will believe. So if you believe in him, you get all of his righteousness. He takes all of your guilt and he promises that when you die, he will raise you again to that kind of life. If you haven't believed in that, believe today. Because today is the day of salvation. He might return before the day's over. Don't be caught thinking he's delayed. Believe today and be saved and know that that is what you will inherit. That's the new heavens and the new earth. As, as best as broken human southern Rome Georgia language can say it, that's the new heavens and the new earth. So what do we do with this? The study of last things has some very practical outcomes. John Frame said, so far as I can see, every Bible passage about the return of Christ is written for a practical purpose, not to help us develop a theory of history, but to motivate our obedience. So I'm gonna give you some applications. There are five of them. Four of them I've taken from John Frame. I'm not gonna recreate the will. He said it better than I could say it. So I put out there, frame, frame, frame. So these belong to frame. I reworded them because I don't like the way he worded them, but they're still his ideas. So I footnoted that so you know. And then the last one is mine. I'm proud of it. So here we go. Number one, the study of last things, eschatology should help us reorder our priorities and grow in holiness. The study of eschatology should help us to reorder our priorities and help us grow in holiness. Listen to that 2 Peter 3, 10 to 13 passage. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth, the works that are done on it will be exposed. Exposed. Everything exposed. You think it's hidden? Might be hidden now? He's gonna expose it. Since all things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord, right? Therefore, if that's it, if he's gonna recreate all things and he's gonna shake everything up and uncover everything, how ought I to live today? So the study of last things ought to motivate our holiness and reorder our priorities around the kingdom of God. Number two, eschatology should help us grow in eagerness for the return of the Lord Jesus. Eschatology should help us grow in our eagerness for the return of the Lord Jesus. Revelation twenty two twenty says, he who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming soon, amen, come Lord Jesus. The study of last things should absolutely help us grow in our eagerness for the return of the Lord. Revelation ends with this exclamation, come Lord Jesus. There's even a song, come Lord Jesus, come. There should be an anthem in our heart that says return, Lord. Lord, we long for your return. We long for your appearing. We long for you to make all things new. Third, eschatology should cause us to be humble in what we think we know and what we must be re- and that we must be ready at any time for the Lord's return. Let me say that again because I totally stumbled all over it, even though I'm reading it. Reading left to right, one word after another. Eschatology should cause us to be humble in what we think we know, and we must be ready at any time for the Lord's return. 
This application is two in one because of what Jesus says in Mark 13, 32. Listen to Jesus very carefully. Even the Lord Jesus doesn't know some of the specifics about his return. Now we're gonna get into inter-Trinitarian communication. That's a different study, different time. But Jesus is clear, Mark 13, 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And because Jesus doesn't know by the design of the triune God, he tells us in Matthew 24, 44, that we need to be ready at all times because we don't know either. Matthew 24, 44 says, Therefore you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming an hour you do not expect. Jesus doesn't know that hour. You and I don't know that hour. And therefore we don't know all the circumstances surrounding that hour. Therefore, we should be humble about what we think we know and we need to strive for being ready. So rather than perfecting one branch of eschatology and working out all its implications, strive to be holy and be ready because he might come at that moment, you're prideful about what you think you know. And I do not want to be caught being prideful about something that even Jesus himself doesn't know until the Father tells him. So eschatology should humble us. The more you study this, the more you ought to realize you don't know what you think you know. And I might ought to focus on striving for holiness. Fourth, eschatology should cause us to look forward to receiving reward for our labor in Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15, Paul tells us that this day, the Lord's day, the day of his return is going to disclose each of our works and we will receive reward for what we have done in faith. Jesus has taught us all through the gospels, it's okay to live life understanding that if I obey the Lord, there's reward. It is okay to live for future grace. So eschatology is a cause to look forward to receiving the reward of our labor in Christ and it should motivate more of that labor knowing that the Lord will repay us. He will give back to us on that day. And finally, eschatology should cause us to long for the healing and restoration of all things that we get to preview in Revelation 21 and 22. It should cause us to long for the healing and restoration of all things and cause us to work toward them. Here's what I note. People who truly believe that Jesus is making all things new and that where we are, we're going to continue to be forever, just renewed without sin, strive to repair now what is broken, waiting for the Lord to come and finish it off because we know we're working toward his end. That's the kind of understanding of the end that motivates domains of society, understanding that education will continue into the new heavens and new earth it will just be done right and the study of God will be the king of all disciplines so as we study hydrology we will study the God who made hydrology and as we study the work of water and all of mountains and seas and creatures we will be studying the God who made them and that study of God will inform everything so now we set our eyes to understand the mind the brain the body creation and as we do that we get to know the God who made it and we move toward his ends as we take care of everything he stewarded us with in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And so as we understand the end, it motivates what we do now so that on that day we get to see the fruit of our labor, receive reward from the Lord, and continue on in that discipline forever. That's the kind of new heavens and new earth I'm down for. And so Three Rivers Church, if you believe the gospel, let me encourage you 
Take those applications and put them to work. But get up tomorrow and get after it, understanding he might return. If we make it to tomorrow, get after your vocation. Do it to the glory of Jesus Christ. Seek to be excellent. Strive to see him in all the fiber, in all the details. Look for his instruction. George Washington Carver tells the stories of being in the lab and asking the Holy Spirit for what to do with the peanut. And God would speak to him out loud and tell him what to do in the lab so that you have peanut butter. So that you have a hundred other things as a result of the peanut because one man believed that God wanted him to do something with creation, to take care of his people and to manage creation well. You have a hundred thousand products because one man heard the Lord tell him how to manage it today. Looking forward to that great day. And if you hadn't read George Washington Carver's biography, you need to go repent and read that sucker because it'll bless you. It'll bless you. Looking toward the day he worked today. And I get Jif because of it, and I love Jif. We respond in worship. So let's pray together and let's sing to the Lord. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you would take your word and make it a lamp for our feet and light for our path. We pray that you would take the new creation, new heavens and new earth, creation regained, and that you would spur us on to love and good works. We pray, Father, that you would give us a glimpse of what is coming so that we long for it. And we long to make today a little more like it. Father, we do pray today where um, chaos and fear and mourning and hurt and loss uh, dominate that pit in our chest feeling that thing that's there we pray that you would uh, holy spirit speak shalom to that in a little bit just some way today for our friends today and the the weight they they carry pray father that you would effectively powerfully decree some shalom some order peace to this day for us, Father, who are split in so many different directions, so many good things happening today. There's, there's joy and pain. We pray, Father, that the joys would be high and the pain would be mediated. We pray today that in all of us together as we, as we sing, but as we part to go on mission today, that you would send us with the hope of new creation. We would enjoy the joys and you would mediate the lows. And pray, Father, today that that glimpse of new creation would fuel us today. Tonight, as we lay down to rest for tomorrow, would you help us to sleep full of the Holy Spirit? Would you cause us in our sleep to experience the fruit of the Holy Spirit? And as we wake, whatever hour of the morning, that we would wake in the fruit of the Holy Spirit. A little taste of new creation. A little move to be ready and look forward to your return. As we sing now, receive it. Receive it from hearts that love you, lives that are lived for you. You tangibly manifest your presence among us. Pray.